all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, operators, and investors about all things value creation in startups. Today, I'm talking to Greg Scoresby, the founder and CEO of Campus Logics, who has now built out a platform out here in Arizona where he does many things. Uh, un- entitled under the flagship Phoenix Ventures. There's Phoenix Forward. I think there's Phoenix Timeshares. You know, <laughs> Phoenix Payday Loans. Uh, just the whole gamut. Greg, how are you? Good. Yeah, Phoenix. Let me let me see if PhoenixLoanShark.com <laughs> is available. Yeah, but all things PHX for sure. Greg, how you doing? I'm doing great. I'm still a little sad that you um, you quit Arizona. But I get it, man. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> everybody should everybody should feel like they're home. So I'm excited that you guys are excited to be home in Carlsbad. It's amazing. Yeah. You know, Phoenix has been a, a great spot for me. Um, but you know, there's a time, I, I don't know if you've ever felt this, that it's just there's a full body yes into a life decision. And that one going to California is one of one for us. We used to live in New York and you know, my wife and I were raised here, but it, we loved New York. There were things about it that were amazing, but we we just kept coming back here. And so for us, for for us, it was coming back here. We have these big life decisions, but like I said, everybody should feel settled where they live, and especially when you're in you're in kid raising mode. You know, you're you're younger than me, and you've got little kids. And so, absolutely, if you want to raise your kids there, there's no better. I mean, that's that's amazing to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. So. It's amazing. I would say about 20% of the people I tell in Arizona have some kind of visceral reaction, usually around taxes, you know, <laughs> liberal policy that's going to sexualize my kids in kindergarten, <laughs> you know, some really like, you know, very strong opinions about it. I read your LinkedIn post about it. I, I didn't, I didn't feel like you were trying to make a political statement about quitting Arizona and, you know, and, and it wasn't about, I didn't feel like it was pro, pro, uh, Pro California or anti Arizona, I, I I genuinely think everybody should. You know, you want to be able to do what you want to do, make what you need to make, and live where you want to live. That's the trifecta of career success. So I'm excited for you guys. And so you are, though, on the other hand, very pro Arizona. It's all over your branding. It's all over your messaging. It's very consistent, which I think is great. But I'm going to start you off on a question: Is what doesn't work in Arizona? What is the the downfall of Arizona, in your opinion? What problem are you solving? So my, my entire framework, I mean, to, to, for, for, for people that may not know my background, the thing that, the thing that I love is company building. I, I love company building. I think uh, people that if you can build a sustainable growth company, and, I'm, and by sustainable growth, I mean it's, it's high growth yet cash efficient or capital efficient. If you can do that uh, and build a healthy culture, it's, it's an amazing impact on individuals, families, and communities. So in general, I just, I love company building. I think great companies are built everywhere. I, that, this isn't, I think some people, particularly those that are, have been in major uh, capital markets, San Francisco, uh, Boston, New York, 
I think a lot of people have this newly discovered idea that you can build a great company anywhere. It's new to them. It's not new. This isn't, this isn't a new idea. You can build a great company anywhere. Now, now there are some real challenges to your, to your point. What, what, what problem needs to be solved? I think there's been a dearth of institutional seed stage capital in some of these markets. So while a great company can be built anywhere, you can attract top, top talent with high levels of ambition with, with, with some exceptions. I mean, if you're, if you're doing very complex, never been done before foundational model development in AI, for example, that might be hard to do here. You know, that's possible, but, but outside of those type of things, um, I, I think you can build great companies here, but there has been a real problem with institutional seed stage capital. There just hasn't been enough of it. And I can go into more what I mean when I say institutional like quality, but I think you haven't, you haven't had that here before. So um, that's what we're trying to, that the problem we're trying to fill is uh, institutional quality seed stage capital for, for people who want to build venture scale software companies here in Arizona. Um, traditionally, I would definitely agree with you. There has been a dearth in Arizona among a gazillion other markets in the United States, but I feel like that's not so much the case anymore. I think that's true. I mean, there's, uh, there's been, um, major catalyzation happening in like for, uh, for a number of, a number of reasons. And I'll, 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 I'll give shout outs to people. I think, uh, Jack Selby's ability to raise a $110 million fund domiciled in Arizona. Um, now that I think they're, they would describe as late stage a is, is typically where they, they want to be. They do some placeholder checks, but that's totally different. Didn't exist two, three years ago. Our most recent fund, we haven't closed it yet, but you know, we're North of 30, uh, committed so far and which is about the right size for us. We set out to raise 25, we're North of 30. There's a lot of, uh, SPV vehicles too, where people will raise under a special purpose vehicle where like they can lead or co-lead or follow along with a million, million to $2 million check. Those things are definitely different. When I raised money for Campus Logic, uh, there were, after my initial round, there were 40 plus people on the cap table that I had to, you know, piece together to get $3 million of, of outside angel money. So I, we, I needed that money to, to build the company, to build enterprise grade software that we built. That was a really hard to do. There was no there was no 500K to $1.5 million check writer here then. And, and that is very different now. There are multiple check writers like that here. Now, there's also way more company formation going on here now than there used to be too. So these things always uh, you know, move at different cadences, capital raising, company formation, but, and, and, the, and the supporting the broader ecosystem. But I, I do think none of these things are, are, are stagnant or, or, or uh, this is a very, all things are dynamic, right? The number of founders who want to build big companies, the amount of capital available to them, they're always moving. But um, right now it is definitely true. There's been, there's way more capital than there used to be for sure. Do you, do you find sharp elbows in the room? Not really. I, I will say it's hard not to want to feel like, look, uh, you know, you know this cause you're a capital allocator here too. You, you need to um, do a few things. Well, you need to source but, but it, and, you know, you need to, and which I think you're particularly good at. Thank you for the referrals that you've given us, by the way, you're really good at this, but uh, sourcing selection and support are the, what we would consider the three things that have to be done. But inside of sourcing and selection means winning, right? You've got to be able to win deals to, to do the deals you want to do. I found it to be pretty collaborative here. It's hard. It's hard because uh, when you want to be in a deal, you have, like you want to be in that deal. Mm-hmm. And so it's hard not to feel a little bit competitive to get the allocation that you need. I mean, that's a, 
that's what you promised your LPs, your limited partners, your investors, what you would do. And so you need to be in the, if, if we're telling people we're going to be primarily focused on Arizona and we are B2B software investors and there are winners that are B2B software investors that we never got to see. I don't feel so bad about the things we saw, we passed on and someone else did. Like that was a choice we made. Time will tell whether we were right or not, but we can't not see like the, the thing that's intolerable is you have to be able to see the deals that you, you want to do. So I think, you know, nobody's, nobody's sharing their deal flow proactively if they, if they want to do it, you know, when we're doing that, we do that ourselves too, but we try to be pretty collaborative. I don't, I don't feel uh, a lot of, I don't feel conflict with anybody else in the, in the market in that regard. So no one's pushing anyone out for allocation at this point. I haven't seen that. I haven't really seen that. No. I mean, maybe it exists, but uh, we now there are, there are times where uh, we've wanted to, you know, get, get into another deal. But for the most part, I think people are like, if there's, if, if there's enough, there's enough to go around in part, part of it also is you have, uh, not everybody has to do deals here. Like there's other, there's other, you know, you can do deals outside the market as well. Mm -hmm. Um, but we'll see, I I think broadly, even zooming out of outside of Arizona, you, you know, this as well as anybody. And I think probably most of your listeners do too. Uh, there's been way less capital flowing into early stage companies in 2023, you know, versus, versus 2022. And I think 2024 will be similar. There's not a bunch of new funds that are going to be raised. Like it's harder to raise a fund. If you're a venture capital firm, a lot of people in 2024 are going to need to shore up existing companies. So there's going to be a lot of existing capital going back into the, some of the same companies they've already invested in. So I think for new companies receiving capital, there, it's just it's just a harder time than it has been. I don't I don't actually think it's historically hard. I think if you go back past 2020, like this looks a lot like 2018, 2019, which were still pretty good years for software. Maybe 2017, 2018, but uh, I don't I don't see people pushing allocation out there. There is there is way there is a, a way lower level, a much lower level of uh, uh, of deployment, obviously in the venture community. Sure. That's probably more of a, a lack of company than lack of allocation available. Correct? Yeah. Look, in Arizona specifically, I always say, look, we need three things. I, I want I want Phoenix to become a top software city. That's why I started Phoenix Forward. Uh, and if you're if you're listening to this and you're interested, it's phxfwd.org. If you want to check out the website there. But the reason I wanted to start Phoenix Forward was I want Phoenix to become a top software city. And I maintain this. I've been saying this for years. You cannot. You cannot have, you can't be a top venture capital city, meaning like venture dollars deployed per capita, if you have an inadequate number of software companies. Software, including AI and, and various, you know, all the dimensions of software and what that means. If you don't have a robust software entrepreneurial ecosystem, you're, ne- you're always going to lag on, on venture dollars deployed. So uh, I've talked about this in other, in other formats publicly, but I think we need three things to be a top software city. We need more capital formation. Uh, we need more capital deployment, and we need more community vibrancy. And I made sure all three of these started with C, so that I could remember what they are. Uh, <laughs> but uh, otherwise, I wouldn't be able to remember. But I think that uh, look, we we absolutely need more companies being formed here with people that have big ambition that want to start, you know, and scale their company here. And that would create. And we need we need more of that for sure. And we need more capital velocity, right? You've got to have more dollars going in and dollars coming out and getting recycled. And then, and then, a, and then a community from which those companies can attract 
and hire top talent, experienced talent. So I think those three things working in harmony, company formation, capital deployment or capital velocity and community vibrancy are the things that I want to, I want to push on those three things to try to help Phoenix become a top software city. You know what I think would just accelerate all that? Just having a, another C community development act of God, right? Where Phoenix was able to recruit a leading SaaS company that wasn't like big tech, right? So I'm talking a MongoDB, a Snowflake, a Palantir, <laughs> you know, a Cloudflare, something here. Because it seems like what we're continually bringing in is chips, autonomous vehicles. Cool, right? But if we're in the game of investing in software companies, it'd be nice to get some, some sexy software companies in the, in the mix. Uh, I'm not sure a lot of, I'm, I, I, I'm quite certain people, certain people don't agree with me on, on what I'm about to say here, but I love the Taiwan Semiconductor is, is here growing and investing. It's a net positive for Arizona. I think it's neutral uh, for, like it, it'll have no effect on uh, brand new company formation that attracts venture dollars, venture dollars. So are these good jobs? Yes, they're good jobs, just like Intel has been producing good jobs for you know, 30, 40 years here in the, in the Valley. Like these are, these are good jobs. They're non-construction related jobs, which are good jobs. Right. right? And so, and we need, to, we need that diversification uh, in, our, uh, in our employment base here. But I don't actually think someone that's working in a fab in, uh, for Taiwan Semiconductor is going to leave to start a new company. I might be wrong. I would love to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, or at wrong. least not a company that we would invest no, in. No, no, yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, you, yeah, exactly. Like most venture capital dollars is flowing into businesses. When I say software, here's what I mean, right? They're flowing into recurring revenue, highly capital efficient business models, ideally with north of 100% revenue retention, right? These businesses grow on their own. They, the, the revenue revenue pot gets bigger. They're high gross margin. They're recurring revenue. They don't take 30, 40, 50 million, $100 million, $200, $300 million to figure out if you've got something. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, those are the types of businesses that attract the majority of venture dollars uh, in this country, and we need more of those here. So... Greg likes company building. Greg did it several times and did very well for himself. Now you are investing and now you're on your second fund. What was that transition like from being the, the boss applesauce to now being a minority shareholder? You know, it's different um, for sure, right? But uh, I would say a couple of things that are similar and a couple of things that are, are different, you know, f- First of all, when you're in an operating role um, and you've got your hands on the wheel, right? Those are, you, you, it doesn't mean you're not listening to other people about, hey, where, what's ahead that I should be aware of. Um, and I felt like I took a lot of feedback from my investors, from my board, from my executive team. But at the end of the day, you're like, hey, this is, with this company succeeds or fails, it's largely going to be you know, driven by, 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 by me or the, and the team. And so, um, you know, th- that's different, right? We're, we're not, you know, you, you're in a, you own 10, 15% of a company. You can ask good questions in the boardroom. You can, uh, to try to understand what the founder is worried about, what's on their mind, what, how they see the market. You can make suggestions. But at the end of the day, we're along, f- we're backing their vision. 
and their journey. Like that's at the end of the day, that's, that's what we're doing. There, there is an aspect of firm building, like building Phoenix Ventures. Like I'm, I want to build, I want to be a top quartile venture investor. So I don't, I, I don't want to deploy capital to, um, you know, because it's fun. I, I want to deliver top quartile returns. And so I want to be known. Now, now, as you know, you don't get a lot of immediate feedback on whether you're good at this for a long period of time. But I could get to be seven, eight, nine, ten years on these early stage investments until they, they perform or, or deliver real cash out. But I want to deliver top quartile returns. So I'm in learning mode. I'm trying to consume podcasts, yours, and many other people's to try to, uh, and reading books and, and, and other, other things to, uh, you know, primarily podcast content, to be, to be clear, on what other great VC firms have done over time to build an enduring firm that delivers top quartile returns. I mean, that's, that's the only measure that matters on whether a venture capital firm is good at what they do. It's not assets under management. It's cash that you gave back to, your, to people that gave it to you. And so I've got a lot to learn. It feels a lot like the early days of any company I started. Like I'm just in learning mode and trying to get, trying to get better. I do, you know, one of the reasons to connect two thoughts here, I do have a belief that in-person interaction with our founders on a somewhat regular basis and building community, you know, by, you know, amongst our founders does a couple of things. One, it should be highly curated, like referral deal flow. A lot of our referrals come from our existing founders. We just closed the deal um, that hasn't been announced yet, but it came from a referral from one of our founders. Um, this founder, when one of our founders who's got high momentum building a great company says, you should talk to this other person. Like we, we want to talk to that person. We, that person has a pretty good idea of what we're looking for. And then also what, uh, what we're looking for in a founder. But, but I do think to uh, not to lose the, uh, script here, but I think, uh, there are some differences with being an operator in an operating role, a founder operator of a, of a software company versus a founder and operator in a VC firm. But there's also some similarities, the firm building, you know, you got to get purpose, mission and values, right. You got to get your methodology, right. You've got to attract capital. Um, those are, those are similar dynamics, but, um, you don't, you know, we're not, we don't control the outcome as much as you do in a, when you're, when you're in an operating role. Yeah. But that's still from the reps and sets that you've done in the operating role. I'm sure that, you know, you can give feedback to a founder that's received, but if I were you and I've scaled companies to where you do, and I've given quite candid feedback to a founder and they smile, fuck you and, you know, do their own thing, that could be kind of frustrating, right? So how do you <laughs> deal with that? Um, well, I do have um, some specific examples of that. I mean, look, I, I, um, one of our values is at Phoenix Ventures is we're helpful, kind, and direct. And so even if we pass, we try to be helpful. We try to connect people. Um, we always want to be kind. Um, what I think most of the time happens, people in, in, the, in the spirit of trying to be kind, I think founders get way more cheerleading than they do coaching or they get criticism, which also doesn't feel like coaching really. Right. And so, um, I try really hard to be direct. I mean, I had a specific conversation with, with a company we invested a little bit of money in and I, um, I, this was, uh, not this year, but, uh, you know, last year and their, uh, churn rate was really high. They were losing customers and, um, it felt like they had an inability to confront reality. So 
um, they would say things like, hey, and, and they also had like negative net promoter score. And I would say, uh, and they would say things like, the reason our customers love us, and I, and I would say, look, <laughs> I, there's, there's actually the data says your customers don't love you. Right. Now, there is indication that your customers want this product. There's absolutely, like the sales velocity tells me people are absolutely looking for what you're selling. So I'm not worried about whether people want this product or not, but it seems like we have a problem. Like, let, but let's start with getting, like, let's have a real conversation. They don't love your product. They're churning because they can't seem to get onboarded. And so that's what we spent this year focused on is like working on those things. So it is frustrating when people aren't willing to confront reality, but I think it starts with, you know, I'm not trying to, I, I, I made tons of mistakes in building campus logic. Uh, you know, I always tell a founder, look, my feedback and all feedback is contextual. So, and only you knows, only you as the founder know, if I'm giving you feedback that's relevant, then great, take it. If I'm giving you feedback that's not relevant, you're going to get conflicting feedback as a founder and you have to decipher what you're going to listen to and what you're not going to listen to. But I, on the other side of the table, on the investor side of the table, I always want to tell someone, look, in my experience, when I've seen companies that look like this, this is the outcome. This is the outcome that you end up with. You end up with a company that will never raise capital again and you're, you cannot outrun churn and like you start to develop a bad reputation in the marketplace. Those are not things that will allow you to continue to grow and scale and ultimately create shareholder value for yourself, your employees, not to mention, you know, your investors. And so those are, um, that's what I've tried to do is approach like everything with, I don't know your business really. I don't know your customers. I don't know what's going on really inside your company. I can share my own operating experience with you. You can decide if you think it's relevant. But what I will do is I'll look at real data. We'll have fact-based conversations and I'll share my opinions and you can decide whether you're going to listen to them. Uh, and for the most part, that's been really well received. Like if you don't come across as a jerk and you tell someone you should do this or like, uh, but I, I, I try to ask good questions. I, I, I'm trying to get better at asking good questions in the boardroom. At the end of the day, questions are a lot more effective than, you know, I'd say inquiry is way more effective than advocacy. Mm -hmm. So rather than telling someone you need to do this, I'm telling you, you have to do this. Asking good questions is much harder to do and much more powerful. So I'm trying to get better at that. And uh, so in, in the spirit of trying to be a, a, a good a partner to these founders. Yeah, my experience with that, and this is from me doing it the wrong way for probably around five years, right? About slamming my you know fists down on the, on the table and <clears throat> not being a, a great partner is that the relationship needs to be built before that feedback is actually heard. Right. And, um, it's, it's easy to be an asshole. Like that's not a typical, yeah. that's not a typically hard you know, skill to have. I mean, some people like, don't like confrontation. I don't think I've ever met anybody in, in this business that is afraid of confrontation. I just think if you yeah, kind of self-selects out because this, you know, business is a, a job of performance. Yep. So anybody in this business has the capability to be an asshole. So that in itself is not difficult, but it's harder to be an asshole when you have a really good relationship with somebody and what I mean by an asshole saying the truth, like you see it and calling bullshit when you see it. And I feel like at this point in my career, um, I mean, I've gotten, I mean, I've got incredible relationships with my founders where I beat the shit out of them in a boardroom. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's fine because they're going to listen and do whatever they want anyway. Right. But at the end of the day, you know, we'll still have a, you know, a makeup sesh kind of after, you know, just saying like, you know, this is what I heard. This is what you heard. Sometimes people hear different things in different contexts, but, um, 
Yeah. I think sometimes um, we overuse the kind of marriage metaphor. Like these aren't, these aren't exactly marriages, but uh, I feel like, look, I've been married for uh, over 30 years. I, uh, my wife and I have a, a, a great marriage. It, it, um, it doesn't mean we don't have hard conversations. What it means is we have hard conversations. Like we, if I, I want, if I'm doing something that's bothering her, I, I definitely want her to tell me if she's worried about something, I definitely want her to tell me. And she feels the same way. So I think a board, I think a board and founder relationship and investor founder relationship has to have some parallels to that, right? You've got to have, you've got to have an ability to have real conversation. Otherwise the relationship just won't persist. And so, you know, you can't be mean to each other. You can't like do things, you can't undermine each other you know, sticking with the marriage metaphor, you can't like do things that are disloyal to each other and, and think it's not going to impair your, <laughs> impair your relationship, but you have to have the ability to, uh, debate, um, to resolve and like move and move forward. And the best CEOs always manage their board in ways that are like both at the individual level with individual investors and at the collective level and manage the board dynamics. And I've seen that with the best people at best board, uh, best CEOs I've been around are masterful at um, managing their board. And that doesn't mean managing their board, meaning like selling to their board. That's actually the worst when, I'm, mm-hmm. when, when I feel like I'm being sold to in the board meeting. Like I just want someone to tell me what they're, what's frustrating them, what's annoying them, where the risks are. Like that's, those are the conversations I want to have. So I do think managing, uh, managing a board is a skill that, and you, you, you just, you have to develop from firsthand experience. If, you, if you're a if first time founder, you, you can read about board management, investor relationships, but there's no substitute for just experiencing it on the wild. Mm-hmm. Good segue. The term first-time founder. Most of them are, right? And at least in my experience, um, especially in markets like these, companies that we fund, good founders, I feel, is a term for almost like a lagging indicator of success. So... Being that said, how do you identify people that you think that can carry a company to a level that is going to put you in the black? Well, I'll use a company as I'll use a specific company that I that I love and I've been around for uh, uh, almost five years now. So Gabe Cooper, who you know, uh, runs Virtuous uh, CRM and marketing automation for the nonprofit industry. Very high growth, great performer. Um, vertical software company. They are they've created a category they call responsive fundraising, and they. They absolutely are gonna. Uh, they have and will continue to dominate that category. Like they're 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 winners. When I first met Gabe, they were below a million in ARR. Like we were having breakfast uh, together, first meeting, and I said, "Hey, tell me a little bit about Virtuous." And immediately, he starts using SaaS metrics, like the math of the business, to tell me about his business. So. This is what we do. We're, we're in this, uh, we, we help nonprofits fundraise. Um, here's what I like about the business. We're like highly efficient customer acquisition model and great retention. Um, I'd like to, I, I feel like we should be able to accelerate pipeline velocity more. Like he was talking about what he liked and what he wanted to be better with the SaaS metrics. So for starters, when someone is highly connected to the math of their business, uh, it is amazing. I, we, we, so that's, that's one thing. If someone is, is inarticulate about the math of their business, that's just like, I, I, I sort of don't know how to engage with a founder that there. And, and the reason that is, is because someone who's connected to the math of their business 
will uh, iterate on the telemetry of their business over time on how they're going to run their business and the instrumentation they need to run their business. They will iterate on that because that's, that's a must have. Like you, when you, at the end of the journey, you look back, you will, the, the metrics you looked at on day one will be somewhat similar to the ones you looked at on year 10, but really there's going to be, and there'll be some core things there, but there's just going to be way more about the, how you think about the business. So I think that's one thing. The, the part I don't know about, the part about Gabe that I didn't know um, and I'm not sure is knowable is uh, the trajectory of ambition. So Gabe's ambition now, so I'm a little over four years, I've been on the board for four years, four and a half years um, there. His ambition now is bigger than it's ever been. His, uh, the way he sees the market is bigger than it's ever been and the market opportunity for them the way he sees the need to continue to up-level his team to capture the market opportunity to go, you know, build a hundred million plus ARR business is bigger than it's ever been. And I do believe that Virtuous, if they want to, has a public company profile at some point if they, if they want that. The, so the trajectory of Gabe's ambition is really, I've not found a way to really underwrite that. I don't know if you ever have, but how do you know, how do you know, how someone's ambition is going to change. I think more often than not, maybe not more often than not, but often someone is like half a million in ARR and they get to 5 million and they're like, let's sell this company for 20 million bucks right now. And like, it's not the end of the world, but gosh, we spent all this time investing and trying to get here. We own 10% of this company. Like we put in a million bucks or something like that for this, for this company. And we get 2 million out at the end of it. It gets, it's not bad, but it does not do what we need it to do. It does not like we need that company to get to three, four, five hundred million, and or at least try to get there. You know, to have that type of like uh, exit outcome. So that that is really hard for me to underwrite. Is what what will happen to this founder's ambition over time? Will they be able to go the distance? Will their ambition get bigger? Will they want to go all in and just keep riding the horse for as long as they can and make the business better and better over time? So. I don't know if that's too long of an answer, but it's the math of the business is, is like what I fall in love with, like someone who's closely connected to the math of their business. But the unknown for me is the trajectory of the ambition. Do you have thoughts on that? Yeah, I do. So the math in the business, how do you underwrite that in seed, right? Because it's harder to get seed to have series A metrics, which, you know, essentially if you want a really good cost of acquisition or LTV or churn data, you kind of have to be further along. Would you agree? Yeah. I mean, I always use these words, uh, as it turns out, like inflation is not transitory as it turns out, but, uh, CAC is transitory, right? Like what you customer acquisition costs vary, you know, lifetime value is completely mythical early on, right? You, mm -hmm. you know, you have to have, you have to have historical churn rate to calculate, uh, LTV. So if you haven't even gone through a full renewal cycle yet, but, but what I mean by being connected to the math of their business is, I would love it if a founder said to me, you know, let me tell you what I think the LTV is going to be. Right. Here's what it is today. But the reason this is like a little bit mythical is because I don't have any, like there's no right. churn history. Or this is the ACV of my competitor. I yeah. know they have a three-month sales yeah. cycle because I've done the work, yeah. you know, yeah. on these competitors. Yeah. I've got a handful of data points too. I've signed three or four customers and that tells me like I'm probably close to that. Like I, I just want someone who can do a thoughtful. And I, By the way, I would say the same thing about something like, Tam, right? I Tam for me is kind of a hot button. Yeah, you know, everyone's got this typical, the typical concentric slides, right? Tam, Sam, Sam. 
those are completely worthless to me as an investor. What I love is if someone says, uh, hey, I can show you this like Tam, Sam, Psalm slide. I still don't fully know the difference between Sam and Psalm after all these years. I and I don't care. Mm-hmm. What I really want someone to say is, this is how many customers are in my market. This is what my current annual contract value is, but I can triple that number. When I add product number two, it will go up. And that this is how I'm going to expand this. I want the bottoms up math on how someone thinks about their TAM. It's not the absolute TAM that I care about. It's how they're going to expand their TAM over time. Or segmentation. Like or how, segmentation. Yeah, how yeah. is your customer segmented versus SMBs versus enterprise, number of employees, number of users? That level of granularity really helps. And give me the evidence that you've actually done the work to know the buyer persona in this segment. Right. Is I've talked to 10 or 15 or 20 of those people and four of the people that I talked to bought my product. Like that's about enough for me as a stage investor to want to go all in. If someone's connected to the math of their business, they understand the segmentation. They've, uh, they, they, uh, have just a tiny bit of traction that seems to be loading. Like that's, that's a typical insertion point for us. Mm-hmm. So virtuous Gabe had, uh, ambition at first, the ambition compounded as the business has been successful, has raised subsequent up rounds, has made acquisitions, has compounded ARR, has grown quite nicely, great net retention. What about founder characteristics of companies that don't go up and to the right? So, um, back to something I mentioned earlier, I think, um, an unwillingness to confront reality mm-hmm. like, uh, like that is, that's a hard thing when you're constantly in selling mode. You know, capital raising is, is a sales activity. When you are a founder and you are, you are selling your stock, it's a sales activity. You're selling your stock in exchange for cash. That's the, it's a sales activity. What I think a lot of people lose sight of is, okay, we got the deal done and I was honest about what was going on in the business, but I was also selling the future and, and what can be, what be possible about it. Selling isn't, a, just to be clear, selling isn't a euphemism for lying. Like you, like that, I've seen that a couple times this year. Like you, you've got to be truthful when you raise capital as a founder. It will kill you, like if you, if you're not. But uh, if you are... I think they said that it's okay in founder school. Like, I don't know, like, who, like, who proctored that course, but the yeah. lying during fundraising thing seems yeah. to be common practice. Yeah, but I think, uh, I, I think that uh, the ability to confront reality... I be honest here, but, but also like use data to, to, to really drive their business is the, like for me is a, is a thing. I, I think I'm an investor in a company that I love this founder. Like he's, a, a, we've invested in 20 plus companies in the last four years. And, uh, like he's, he's probably like top quartile as far as like, I, I never, I always have confidence in him. The business is like just okay. Mm-hmm. Like it's we're we're going to make money. He's going to make money. It's not going to be a screamer. Right. Like it's it be, and it's not because of a lack of effort. It's not like that. Like he does everything. He does everything right. Like those are not hard conversations to have. Like even if we just get our money back, it's not the end of the world. Like mm-hmm. he, I have confidence. He's done everything. He's connected to the math of his business. Like he knows. Yeah, the industry can, and the market suck. Right. Yeah. 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 Or something changed. Or like it just, it just hasn't quite materialized in the, in the way that he thought it was going to. And, um, and the business is growing. It's growing. It's not, it's not that it's not, it's not contracting or anything. It's growing. It's just like it's half the size of probably what he thought it would be and what we thought it would be a few years into the investment. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and then you overlay that with how valuations have changed. Right. Yeah. And 
And so those things, those things are, are make for it. But I'm not, I don't worry about that. Like I don't, I don't worry about those outcomes. I absolutely don't, you know, those, those are those, that's what risk is, right? I signed up for those risks. He signed up for these risks. We have a wonderful relationship. We have real conversations. He invites the real conversation and like, it feels like we're partners. Like he, he knows that like, we don't make, we don't control the decisions in the company, but it feels like we're partners. And so I love that. Um, and, and he also doesn't need our help to run the business. Like we, we try to be helpful, but he's not saying, I don't know what to do. What should I do? Mm-hmm. He'll say, what do you think? And we'll talk about it. And he'll, he'll like, he'll, he'll hear our input. He'll hear input from other people. But I, just to be clear, I wouldn't say that like, uh, there is a correlation, but it's not a perfect correlation between my favorite founders are also have them are the most successful. That, <laughs> that's not, that's not a perfect correlation. My favorite founders are, I, I just think what is correlated is, uh, you know, people who are connected to the math of the business, like they just know their business inside and out and they, they have un, undying ambition and like they can attract top talent. Like you, you have those, you have those characteristics, lots of things go your way. Sure. So our business, our job is to read, it's to network, it's to think. So what are you thinking about? You know, uh, I think the, sh- the easy answer is, um, that everybody probably has been giving this here is like AI, right? Well, it's hard for me to still know. Never even, heard of it. <laughs> even like even 12 months into the post, I think, I think uh, OpenAI announced, you know, the, the, the general availability of GPT, I think November 30th of last year or something like that, November last year. And um, it's still hard to digest. It's easy to say things like that's just a wrapper. Like it's hard to digest what that really means. We're never going to invest in something that's a foundational model, right? These are capital intensive. This is going to end up looking not dissimilar to like the platform as a service offering from Azure. You can already see this, right? People are connecting into these are, these are part of the infrastructure layer uh, or like the the platform layer there. It is still hard to digest what is going to happen. How will, how will Salesforce, Salesforce's application of AI really, and, and how they're using this to change the customer relationship, how will this really affect other market opportunities, even in a vertical CRM or other things? Like it's, it's just hard to know right now. It's still like, and it's changing all the time. So that's, that's, and I would say I don't feel very smart on this at all. And even if I did feel smart on it for a month, I feel not that smart the next month. So that, that I do think about that a lot um, is one thing that's on my mind. And the other thing, the other thing I would say that is uh, I'll just, well, well, let me, let me stop there. What do you think about that? Do you have, what are you, what are you thinking about? I'm curious about, I know this is your interviewing me, but I want to ask yeah, don't you. Don't ask me question. questions on my podcast. <laughs> I ask you questions. No, um, <clears throat> I think that's interesting what you said about like everyone kind of shitting on rappers for AI, because essentially you can say all software is, is a wrapper for Amazon, right? I mean, an application is an application, right? And the back end kind of all looks the same. It's just databases and workflow integrations, right? So that's an interesting point I haven't heard before. Um, I do know applications are kind of like the last things to get monetized generally in these technological platform shifts. So I'm pens up and, and, and um, interested, you know, I'm, I'm waiting, and, and to so, see, but I, I definitely am more on the vertical side. So, you know, I think it goes horizontal than vertical. So, so to use an example, like to, to go to drill down on what you just said. So campus logic, the core product that represented over half of our revenue, we had, 
you know, a product portfolio of seven products. A couple of these were just getting into the market. But at the end of, at the end of the, when we sold the company, half of our revenue is still derived from our flagship product. This product did a couple things, but the main thing it did was we built, uh, um, really extensive logic around an, uh, the, the FAFSA, like financial aid file. Like there was, we consumed the data, we parsed the data, we built a bunch of logic to create a self-service product. And so we had the most extensive logic around this in, uh, available around this data file that had hundreds of like a hundred and at the time, 130 or 140 fields of data about every student in the country, like the way we get this file. The second thing we had was we built an uh, OCR engine, like a, a data ingestion engine off of every tax form. So we used the FAFSA data that came to the schools and then came to us from our, you know, our customers were the schools. And we would, uh, we would use that to drive tasks for the student. And one of the primary tasks was just uploading documents. So give me your 1040, give me your, any, any, 10, any 1099s, give me your W-2s, and then give me some other supporting documentation. And we ran OCR on those. So the magic, our intellectual property was not in the OCR engine. We used the cognitive services. It was called cognitive services then. Yeah, that's uh, from, been built. For Microsoft yeah. Azure. Yeah, we consumed the service. So we spent less than, we spent like usually one to one and a half percent of revenue on our software. Stack. Like, yeah. Stack. Like that is cheap. You, the reason you can get 85% gross margins in SaaS is don't overspend on like you have highly efficient customer success and you don't spend a lot on like your like Azure, AWS, GCP spend. And so that's where we were on our business. I do believe right now that for the most part, we're going to see a corollary in AI, right? The, the, the IP is going to be in piecing different applications together with a level of domain expertise. Like we, we did have the most domain expertise about financial aid workflows too. And so I do believe you're going to see that manifestation of the application layer in AI where people are taking deep domain knowledge about their, uh, their vertical, their function, whatever it is. They're going to be consuming publicly available services in, in, in ways that create immense value for their customers. They're going to also have a community and connection and you know, category. They're going to think about the category differently. That's where the intellectual property exists here. It's not going to be in like some, some more accurate generative AI mm-hmm. like tool. Like that's right. going to be a service that gets better over time, but like we're always going to be consuming these services. So I think you're absolutely right. These are, this is a, this doesn't feel that different. Not, I'm not saying AI doesn't feel different, but the, the construct of being able to consume a service from these major cloud providers to drive like industry specific workflows, mm-hmm. I think uh, will continue those opportunities, at least in the near term, feel like they'll continue to exist. Awesome. Greg, I'm a Phoenix company. How am I getting in touch with you? You know, I've gotten rid of all other social media other than LinkedIn. I'm like all LinkedIn all the time. So we're at phoenixventures.com, phxventures.com. You can find me um, on LinkedIn. I, I do reply back to, I, I do accept almost every invitation unless you invite me to join on LinkedIn and then immediately you try to sell me something. Uh, on LinkedIn, then I will un- remove the connection. But I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty open and available on LinkedIn. Just don't try to sell me something right away. 
Be great. Well, I'll, I'll I'll take those those meetings, but I charge for the meeting. So it's like <laughs> I have, my Calendly has like a Stripe integration where I you know charge twenty five dollars for a pitch. That's a pro move. That's yeah. a pro move. I like that. <laughs> Everybody, thank you so much for tuning into the Capital Stack. We drop an episode every Tuesday. Please, if you like it, tell a friend, subscribe, leave a review, try to cancel me, do whatever you would like to do to make you do you. Anyway, see you next week. Thank you. Bye bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.